Hello, and welcome to the Analyst and the Fool's first episode of Because I Didn't Read It. Before we dive into our material, we wanted to give you a sense for why we decided to create this podcast. To be brief, philosophy touches everything we do. Business, politics, ethics, etc., you name it. Philosophy has something to say about it. As PhD students at Claremont Graduate University, philosophy is the water Brandon and I swim in. However, many people believe, or have been led to believe, that philosophy is difficult, hard to grasp, and inaccessible for those who do not spend a great deal of time engaging with its ideas like Brandon and I do. This podcast hopes to combat that notion, as well as provide folks with easily digestible walkthroughs of various philosophical thinkers' writings and arguments. Thus, the purpose of Because I Didn't Read It will be to provide context to the various writings we will be covering, a clear and concise walkthrough of the arguments presented as Brandon and I understand them, and then some banter about the implications of the arguments presented in the lived world. Are you in a Philosophy 101 class that hurts your head? Are your bros sharing out-of-context quotes by Nietzsche, Foucault, or others on their Instagram stories? Are you worried that the pandemic and ensuing inflation crisis has made armchair Marxists of us all, even if we don't know it? Then this is the podcast for you. It bears mentioning, though, that through the course of this podcast, we'll encounter thinkers that we both admire and struggle with. But philosophy has never been about agreement. It's been about the conversation. Thus, these episodes will not be a hagiography or critique of the thinkers we cover. Rather, they will be explorations of the arguments presented. As mentioned above, discussion may follow about the implications those arguments might have in the lived world, but we will do our best to stick as closely to the arguments presented in the text covered to do both the thinker and their argument justice. We hope, then, that this podcast will be helpful to both students of philosophy and those who have been interested in it but have had a tough go in their own engagement with it. Again, philosophy touches everything in our lives in some way or another, so understanding the thinkers who have shaped the very ways we interact with our worlds is important as we try to create a better tomorrow. For who, though? Well, it depends on who you ask. Rest assured, listener, we will cover the whole spectrum from hedonism to deontology, virtue ethics to utilitarianism, social contract theory to divine command theory, and everything in between. We will begin with a few of the Platonic dialogues, and then move to Plato's own writing, followed by a brief stint with Aristotle's ethics. However, as we hope that this podcast can be of use in real time in the real world, we would love suggestions from our listeners, from you guys. So please feel free to email us at theanalystandthefool at gmail.com for any suggestions of great philosophical works you would like us to cover. We already have a rough and ready list of some thinkers we plan to cover. Kant, Hegel, Marx, oh my! So your suggestions may already be on our list. However, your suggestions will help us decide which thinkers we should cover in coming podcast episodes so that we are not having to decide which thinkers to do arbitrarily. We thank you for being with us, and we hope you enjoy The Analysts and the Fools because I didn't read it. The Analyst. I I don't need to believe. I know. Philosophy is just a byproduct of misunderstanding language. Why don't you realize that? And the fool. Why won't you just admit? There is no rhinoceros in this room. The issue is metaphysical, not empirical. (laughs) The Liminal Podcast, where grand philosophical analysis meets everyday banality. Starring 
Brandon Wilson, and Christian Van Dyke. I thought the next big step in philosophy would be yours. No, I am not so sure. This week's episode... Plato, the Euthyphro. So, I'm going to tell you a quick story about the Euthyphro. Oh, good. (laughs) Because my very first class as a college student at Utah Valley University was the ethics and values course that everybody had to take. Yep. And I took it from uh, Pierre. I don't remember if you remember Pierre. LaMarche. I don't remember. Yeah. Pierre Marsh, bald guy. Yep. Yep. It was in a huge auditorium. And the very, very first thing we discussed was the Euthyphro. Very first thing. So day one, he's he's giving a lecture on the Euthyphro after he talks about the syllabus. Actually, I guess it would have been day two because day one's always syllabus day. Oh, sure. So day, so in other words, first day, we're talking about the Euthyphro. And this is the first time I've ever read Plato. First time I've ever read anything that wasn't a biography about a basketball player or a musician. <laughs> so <laughs> the Euthyphro holds a very special place in my heart just because it's what kicked off my intellectual career because I loved it. Even though looking at it retrospectively, I didn't understand. I understood very little of it. And the TA that I had, because you know how class worked was we had Monday, Wednesday, Friday courses. And so on Monday, Wednesday, every like all 200 kids were in the auditorium and then we'd split off into little discussion groups. Right. We had, we had so my our TA for the Friday group was way, way, way too into Nietzsche. So mm. it made reading Euthyphro kind of a drag. But me reading Euthyphro, I was like, this is really great. And I actually even wrote my final paper in my class on the Euthyphro because I, I liked it that much. Even though, again, I look back and read it and I'm like, this is a terrible paper. Oh, but sure. Oh, sure. Still walked away with an A. Still walked away with like. So in other words, we're start we're kicking things off with the Euthyphro people. And that's why I, I'm really enjoying this because it just kind of brings me back to me as an 18-year-old kid sitting in an auditorium, never having experienced a college course before. And the very first thing that's being thrown at me is the Euthyphro. <laughs> very nice. See, so, so um, it, when I um so I uh took right, I took the ethics and values class as well. Um I, I took it from Brian Birch though. And I, I don't think that the Euthyphro oh, was on, it was a good class. Um, and I don't think that the Euthyphro was on his syllabus. We, we kind of talked about the Euthyphro through something we'll get to. We'll, we'll mention a little bit, a little bit later called uh, divine command and divine con- conformity theory that kind of comes out of the Euthyphro. Um, mm-hmm. But I, 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 I found the Euthyphro um, kind of through that, but then um we, uh, I, uh, I had to take Greek as part of my BA. Um, and in a, in a translation group, we translated the Euthyphro from Attic Greek, um, into English, which is pain and suffering, but, but I'm grateful for it nonetheless. And so I, and then for a year after I graduated, um, I was one of those TAs, um, in a big, huge auditorium thing. And the Euthyphro wasn't on the professor's syllabus either but I worked the Euthyphro in whenever I could for the few weeks that we were talking about Plato <laughs> just because, right. I'm kind of in the same boat as you. I like it a lot. Um, 
I think the the things that it 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 touches on are pertinent. Um, and that right, another thing that we'll we'll come back to over and over again is we never really move past these Socratic dialogues. Um, Plato is an everlasting specter. Um, I mean, that's in. I mean, with really all of our series, when we you know that that we're going to be doing here on the Analyst and the Fool, right? That's like it. You know, in our because I didn't read it series. I mean, we're going to be talking about Plato for a little bit, right? And of course, we're jumping to Aristotle, which really Aristotle is commenting a lot on Plato, either mm-hmm. dis, you know in banter or in agreement with his teacher. And then even continuing onwards, it's, you know, Plato's everywhere, whether it's people trying to move past him or, you know, it, he's he's one of those philosophical masters that just can never be left alone. Even right. if people try to move past him. Right, exactly. Um, and then so, even with, yeah. So yeah, so I was we'll, just going to say even with, so, uh, sorry. You good. <laughs> I was just going to say even with, you know, with our Mormon thinkers course, Plato's subtly there with a lot of how everyone's thinking about things with their theology, with their rationalizing, and even when their conceptualizations of God and the creation are, are, there's, there's some subtleties of the Timaeus that are sure out in in their ideas of creation, which, which we'll get to when we talk about the Timaeus in in a few episodes, but anyway, sorry. Yeah. Spiritual form, right. Everything having a spiritual form before it has a physical form is, is nothing is nothing but Plato, right? Um, and so, yeah, never, never ending, always pre- omnipresent specter. Um, so it's it's important to start. But I, I would be remiss to not say that people like Sophocles, um, Homer, um, other Greek literature folk that were writing at the same time are equally as philosophical, even if, even if they get left, even if they get left out of our philosophical canon. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'd be remiss to say that there's a lot of, there's a lot of Greek literature going on, the tragedians, especially that are grappling with these same issues um, just through a different medium um, that have, for whatever reason, been set aside in our philosophical imagination. Um, Mm -hmm. And so if these kinds of things interest you, um, there's more um, that other folk were doing then as well. Especially with like the so-called pre-Socratics who are probably the most important philosophical thinkers of the Western era. Sure. And who some, some such as um, Peter Kingsley, who I would highly recommend his work, Um, you know, people like Empedocles and uh, Parmenides is his, his primary focuses. you know, they lay the foundation that Plato really just kind of picked up and ran with. Right. Yeah. So it, it's, you know, so the pre-Socratics especially, and even calling them pre-Socratics, uh, it does them really a disservice too. When you uh, yeah. based off of that too. Right. But, yeah. And then the book I was kind of, the book that really helped shape my imagination that way, that the, the literature folks were doing the same kinds of things that, that Plato and Aristotle were. It's a book called, uh, there's a book called Shame and Necessity uh, by Bernard Williams. Um, if you want to check that out, it's good too. Um, so before we dive into the dialogue itself, um, just a little bit of background, um, a little bit on Socrates, right? Um, so Socrates lived through the uh, Periclean age when Athens was at the pinnacle of imperial power. 
um, kind of at Greeks uh, cultural ascendancy um, and um, becomes uh, this kind of rhetorical ethical figure who would just hang out in the market asking people crazy questions. Um, the youth, right. And we'll get into, we'll dive into some of these crazy questions. The youth of Rosa real good example of him just like asking these awkward questions of people um, trying to get at what is um, what these ethical terms that we, that we toss around really mean. Um, and so he becomes this kind of thorn in Athens side. Um, but really, really inspires this, this young, this dude named Plato. And we, we know Socrates through Plato. Um, and we're not going to talk about whether or not Socrates was actually a person. Um, that's not something I've particularly ever cared about, <laughs> right? Lots of ink has been spilled over whether or not this homie named Socrates ever really did walk around uh, Greece or if he was just a character that Plato created to have these kind of dialogues in his writings. Um, I, I think that that's fun, but kind of beside the point. Um, and so in the Euthyphro, we meet Socrates in a place where you wouldn't really expect to find someone like Socrates um, that is kind of at the courthouse. So we, 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 we roll on to Socrates at the courthouse and he bumps into this dude named Euthyphro. Um, and Euthyphro kind of starts out by saying exactly that, like Socrates, I didn't think that I'd see you here at the courthouse today. Um, I can't imagine you're you're prosecuting anybody and it doesn't seem like something you do. So are you being prosecuted for something? Right. And Socrates says, yeah, there's this dude named Melitus who's, who's accused me of corrupting the youth. Um, so I'm here to appear before the court on these charges that this guy that I don't really know much about um, has his, has accused me of. And then of course, Socrates then says, well, Euthyphro, what are you doing here? Um, and Euthyphro tells Socrates, I'm here, um, to prosecute and accuse someone of murder. Um, and we learn that Euthyphro is there, um, to charge his father of murder, which isn't really the best thing to do. Um, which kind of, right, kind of transcends culture not it's kind of a taboo thing to do then you're right you don't really turn on right in an, in an honor your father and mother kind of culture um you don't you don't accuse your daddy of murder um euthyphro's charge of murder is interesting too um because euthyphro's euthyphro's dad had a slave um an enslaved person who, and remind me if I'm getting this right, I guess I have the dialogue right in front of me so I could just find it in the text, but that's not so much, that's not as fun. Um, Euthyphros, I just found it, so I'm just going to read it. Okay, so the victim, the guy that was murdered was a dependent of mine, 
And when we were farming in Naxos, he was a servant of ours. Uh, he killed one of our household slaves in drunken anger. So my father bound him hand and foot and threw him in a ditch, then sent a man here to inquire from the priest what should be done. During that time, he gave no thought or care to the bound man as being a killer, and it was no matter if he died, which he did. Hunger and cold in his bonds caused his death before the messenger came back from the seer. Um, so um, a slave kills, a, an enslaved person kills a servant, um, and Euthyphro's dad ties up that enslaved person and throws him in a ditch and forgets about him. Doesn't forget about him, but while, and I don't, you, you might, you might remember this better than I do, Brandon. Is something like that going to Delphi? No. Um, Delphi is part of the apology to my recollection. Right. Because that's, in because the Delphi's about, yeah. yeah. Because Delphi's more about, because uh, one of the, I mean, one of the major charges, which ends up leading into the, ba the major discussion of the Euthyphro, is also the charge of impiety that this right. guy is is bringing towards Socrates because it's not just corruption of the youth it's corruption of the youth on charges of impiety right and so that's and so with what's going on and so that's why Delphi plays a really important part in the apology which we'll get to obviously obviously in another episode because it it highlights Socrates's um piety because he uses the Oracle, for example, he calls he basically calls the Oracle of Delphi and her testimony as a witness in his right. in his um, defense. Um, I don't remember exactly what he does in the credo. So, I mean, once we get to the credo, we can discuss that more in depth. But with so Euthyphro in this instance is such an interesting guy. Right. I mean, yeah. like <laughs> turning your dad in because of how he treated a slave. Um, now, of course, you know, in our, you know, present day and age that would have, you know, first of all, that slavery even existed would, would still be something viewed as abhorrent, but it's, uh, it, it's something that in that day and age, Euthyphro charging his father of such, of such treatment of a slave was seen as actually what was actually a rather petty move. When, right. when you really kind of dig down into it because slaves right. died all the time and slaves also had very short lifespans because of the type of labor that they were engaging in all the time and also even just the living conditions they were in and all that type of stuff i mean i mean they were property they were just something that you kept around until it had exceeded its use and then you discarded it and bought another one right it was it's very similar to how we view property today so Euthyphro doing this to his, and especially Euthyphro doing it to his father, as you mentioned before, is like, wow. And so then Socrates turns to him and says, why are you like, this seems insane, Euthyphro. Why are you doing this? Right. Why are you, why are you turning your father in on the charge of murder for such a petty charge? And Euthyphro's response is what leads to the dialogue. And, and, you know, and what is Euthyphro's response to Socrates? To our boy Socrates. Yeah. So basically, uh, Euthyphro is just going to turn to Socrates and say, because it's the pious thing to do. 
I am being pious by, by uh, accusing my father um, of murder and prosecuting him as a criminal that way. So it's the pious thing to do. It's what the gods want. In fact, um, to not do so would be impious, right? <laughs> and the word, I, I'm, the word hoisin, I think, is the Greek, if I'm remembering right, the word, the Greek word is hoisin. Um, and the way it's used in this dialogue roughly equates to um, kind of what righteousness is when Plato's writing Republic, the Republic. Um, we'll get to the Republic later as well. Um, that'll kind of be our, our Plato capstone um, is the Republic. So we can talk about righteousness then too, because it comes up again. Um, but basically what I'm doing, so me persecuting and accusing my father of murder is the righteous thing to do. Um, to which Socrates says, um, in kind of his, his, his Socratic way, he's like, oh my gosh, Socrates or Euthyphro, if you can convince me that you're doing the pious thing by accusing and bringing your father to court for murdering an enslaved person, then I need you as my defense attorney when I go to face the courts on this charge that Melitus has brought up, right? So you convince me and you explain to me, Euthyphro, please, what piety is. Um, and you will have proven yourself to be the smartest, most greatest man in the whole world. And I need you in my corner if you can. And what this really exemplifies too, right, is what's usually called Socratic irony. Right, which is a which is a multi-layered type irony. So we'll get to another facet or another layer of Socratic irony in a sec when we start dissecting Euthyphro's arguments for piety and how Socrates discusses it. But it's one of those things where Socrates knows good and well that Euthyphro's, you know, kind of blown smoke out of his mouth, and you know he, he doesn't know what he's talking about. But he kind of bloats him up to think that he does. So mm -hmm. that's where so that's that's one of the layers of irony that's very prevalent in the in the Platonic dialogues. So in Plato's dialogues with Socrates, he anytime someone says something, Socrates is like, oh, my goodness, what luck. I'm so glad to meet someone who is, is a master at this particular thing. And obviously using Euthyphro who is supposed to be this pious character to meet Socrates at the courthouse on charges of impiety is, is to allow the irony of the situation that Socrates is in to highlight the absurd nature of Euthyphro's claims that Plato eventually gets to and tries to pick apart through another layer of Socratic irony. Right. So it's like, does Socrates actually mean that he's grateful for Euthyphro? Probably not, but this is, right, but it's right. like, but this is, and so this, so in other words, um, to kind of put it in more simple terms, Socratic irony is a form of philosophical trolling that <laughs> is not just trolling just to troll, but it's trolling to really get to the heart of a particular problem. And that's what Plato uses to try to 
get to a, a particular center, a particular nature in question or a metaphysics of whatever the dialogue is discussing, which in the case of the Euthyphro is about what is piety or righteousness what, or, or following the gods. What is, what does that mean? Right. right? Yeah. And so, and so it, yeah, after, after he goes through and like, kind of like pumps up Euthyphro as this kind of like big smart guy, he's going to say, okay, like exactly what you said, what is this thing called piety? So that I can, uh, so that I might, I can look at this thing and use it as a model by which I can be pious in all of my dealings with people. And Euthyphro's answer is 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 pretty simple. Uh, Euthyphro tells Socrates that what is dear to the gods is pious; what is not is impious. So just that easy, right? Um, if you're doing something that is dear to the gods, you're a pious and righteous person. If you're not doing something that that is dear to the gods, that's important to the gods, then you're an impious and unrighteous person. And just that easy, right? So there's, there's a few problems with that, especially in uh, Attic Greek culture, right? Um, and Socrates sums it up well by saying that the same things um, are loved by the gods and hated by the gods and would be both God loved and God hated. In other words, in the Greek pantheon, there are gods who think X is pious and, and just as many gods who think that that same thing X is impious. In other words, according to Euthyphro's definition, initial definition of what piety is, You've got, you've got conflicting opinions in Mount Olympus on what constitutes piety. And so from the jump, from jump street, right. That, that definition of piety for, for Socrates just won't cut it because there's disagreement on Mount Olympus, right. What's dear yeah, all the, yeah, all right, the time. Yeah, I, I looked, so so this is my favorite example. What's dear to Zeus? I don't know. Eighty-seven percent of the time is probably not dear to Hera. And I think I think the Stephen Fry yeah. I think the Stephen Fry books are popular enough now that I think a lot of people can kind of like connect those dots without us having to get without us having to dip toes in mythology, right? What's what typically what's dear to Zeus is not all that dear to Hera, whatever Disney tries to tell you about Hercules. <laughs> right. And so Euthyphro's first definition, and it doesn't, Zeus and Hera just happens to be my favorite definition in part because of how Disney depicts Zeus and Hera. Um, my Which first is, my first, hilarious. my first encounter with Greek mythology um, was after having the Disney picture in my head. And oh boy, that was a I'll treat. Say my first, and my, <laughs> first, um, my first depiction was the 1982 
Harryhausen animated film, The Clash of the Titans. <laughs> I actually watched that before I ever watched Hercules. Now, of course, that film that film's not exactly, you know, it doesn't follow the Perseus myth exactly. Sure. It takes some liberties here and there, but it's much more uh dare I say accurate about how Zeus is depicted and yeah, how a lot yeah. of the gods are like, yeah. Zeus, you freaking suck, man. Right. So again, you so you don't have you could use you Poseidon, right? Hades, yeah. right? Whatever. Uh, Zeus isn't a particularly easygoing dude on Olympus. So or popular, what, what, even though right or popular, you know, yeah. So yeah, so we digress. The anyway, there's anyway. disagreement. There's disagreement on Olympus. Is the point, right? And so you can look at your god and say, well, this is pious to my god, and so what looks impious to you is actually pious to me. Um. So, so there's, so there's conflicting, um, there's, 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 there's conflict going on in Euthyphro's first, um, definition of piety. Um, and so Euthyphro's then going to refine that a little bit after some poking and prodding by Socrates. Um, he's going to, he's going to refine that a little bit and then, okay, say, okay, fine, Socrates, piousness righteousness is what all the gods love um so there's supposedly these things that we can winnow away all the all of the the disagreement and settle a handful of things that all the gods love and and that those things can then be the pious things and everything else can turn into impiety um which then kind of becomes um, leads into what is popularly known as the Euthyphro dilemma. So Socrates then turns to, to Euthyphro and asks, um, is the pious being loved by the gods because it is pious or is it pious because it is being loved by the gods? In other words, do the gods love it because it's pious or, or um, is it pious because the gods love it? Is stated. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. No, no. Yeah. So is piousness, is this idea of piety outside and above and beyond the gods or is it something that the gods dictate? And why this dilemma, which has since gone on to be a very famous dilemma that basically every philosopher ever has tried to address in some way, shape or form. And people are still discussing to this very day in all types of theologies and philosophies is that it, it, it pits two very serious problems about piety and its universe and what it constitutes because first of all if it's the first if it's pious because the gods love it we fall back then onto the arbitrary nature of the gods wills because the other thing too uh that we that we kind of missed there is that euthyphro does refine his first argument and says well hold on but all the gods would not disagree that what I'm doing to my father is not considered righteous. 
to which Socrates says, yeah, but right. they can change yep. their mind on it. Right. Yep. Good catch. Yep. And so he's like, okay, yeah, good point. I guess it's like, you know, it's like if one God can change their mind on something, then therefore, and better yet likely would change their mind on something, which is like, why would Hades, for example, care one way or another. Right. You know, more dead people in, in, in the, in the <laughs> underworld. Right. It's, it's, it's a it's good business for Hades. Yeah. Good business right. for Hades. But so if it's the first one, then you have the problem of a God with arbitrary will. Right. Which makes understanding that God incredibly difficult. Unless you're incredibly intimate with that God. And even then you're still not the, you know, it, it, it's still the problem of just arbitrariness. So therefore, how can, how can you define something as pious? If it's like uh, today eating fish is considered pious, but then tomorrow it's not because God says, Oh, I don't like fish anymore. Right. It's like, well, you know, then it just begs the question, what makes that, that God, the God then. Right. Or what makes that God worth devoting yourself to? If it's just an arbitrary God that just says, oh, I like this one day and I like this the next, why would you devote yourself to that kind of God? Right. Yeah. Which then leads, which then leads to the, the other problem, which is that it, or it, it, or do the gods like it because it is pious, which insinuates a larger cosmic law that the gods themselves are under. Right. Which means they're no longer God anymore, yep. <laughs> which means you're actually needing to devote yourself to a higher principle, which then goes back to step one. Right. It goes back to step one to make this. I mean, it, well, it just means you have to re go through that argument all over again, because then what makes that thing? What makes that larger cosmic law that these gods are under pious? Right. And then, and then too, it, it insinuates that, that the God, the gods as a thing to begin with is, is, is unnecessary because mm -hmm. through, through your right, through your intellect, through your reason for Plato, it's about your reason, right? Mm -hmm. um, th this is the thing in the Mino, right? Through your reason, um, you're, you're able to, to get at the form, um, which and if you can get at the form and in this and in this case piety if you can get at the form of piety that the gods love because it's pious then you don't need gods um yeah. the pantheon then becomes useless um unnecessary and just kind of uh, kind of like a cultural accoutrement right um yeah. So, so it does that. It does that as well. It, it it insinuates that by through reason, um, you're able to get at the form, and so you don't need the gods. Um, and so if it's it's if it's because of the gods that you're doing this thing, in the courts with your dad, um, and the gods love it simply because it's pious, then you you relying on what the gods say is pious doesn't really cut it as a sufficient reason for me, Socrates, for you to be persecuting your father. 
which which brings up a whole lot of things down the line, right? Um, so those those though you'll you'll I mean, you, you hear them referred to in a lot of different ways, but those are kind of the two horns, right? The popular the popular metaphor are, are horns, um, where the gods it's pious because the gods love it, and it's pious um, because it because it's pious because the gods say it is, or the gods say it is because it's pious. Did I say that right? Say and as, one more time. And as you can see, you can study this for a really long time and still not be able to articulate it. So it's pious because the gods say it is, or, and then the other horn is it's it, the gods love it because it's pious. I think I got that right. Yeah. And so you got so to on deal. The one hand. Yeah. So the way with visualizing it is on the one side, it's the gods that are over piety. So they determine what it is through right. their own will. Right. And on the other hand, it's piety that is over the gods and the gods have to adhere themselves to it. Right. Yep. 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 That. So now that I'm remembering now, I'm remembering now the thing that, that Brian drew on the board. And it was exactly that. It's this umbrella um, and God for one, God is above the umbrella or here, are the gods, the gods are over the umbrella and piety is underneath the umbrella for the other one. Piety is above the umbrella and the gods are underneath it. Yeah. And then and, we keep, well, the, uh, you go ahead. No, I was just, actually, I was just really going to kind of jump on board with what you were, where you were probably going there because after Socrates presents this, dilemma euthyphro kind of just thinks about it and he's like well i guess it's the latter right because he can't just he can't sit there and say that piety is something that's arbitrarily determined because then there is no such form of pie there's no form of piety anymore there's nothing that can be rationally determined as pious anymore so he says well it's it must be the latter then which then jumps into another side of the dialogue then and says okay so then socrates turns to him and then says all right so if that is what piety is is piety then a part of justice right and of course this is really a larger part of a bigger argument that's going on in the republic because that's what the republic is all about it's about justice, righteousness, because that's what that's what compels the larger argument of the republic. But um, but Socrates just really lays the question out for Euthyphro: Are you not compelled to think that all that is pious is just? And Socrates also asks, then, what then makes piety different from justice? Right. Are they the same or are they different? And I think I've got, I think I've got the statement that winds up kind of being his answer right here in front of me, where he says the godly yeah. and pious is the part of the just that is concerned with the care of the gods. While that yeah. concerned with the care of men is the rain is the remaining part of justice. Right. And so then Socrates is going to run through a whole bunch of different kinds of professions with Euthyphro. Because what he does is he kind of like delineates piety between the gods and the men. 
between between gods and men, right? There's part that the gods are concerned with, but then there's also part that just just humanity is concerned with as well. Um, so Socrates is going to say is horse breeding. So horse breeding is the care of horses, right? So this mm-hmm. one thing is concerned with this one thing and this one thing alone. And, and Euthyphro is going to say, yeah, hunting, right? With dogs, uh, cattle raising, care of cattle, right? Exactly. And so he says, and then he, he asks, while piety and godliness is the care of the gods, Euthyphro, is that what you mean? And Euthyphro, right at this point, there's this other form of irony in the dialogues where the the dia, the dialogue partner is just going to start agreeing with whatever so- whatever comes out of Socrates' mouth, um, whether or not at this point of the dialogue, the partner is just fed up with Socrates' shenanigans, or whether or not this just kind of becomes a rhetorical way that the dialogue is written, is another kind of interesting literary conversation that's kind of outside the scope of us, so we won't go there. Um, but yeah, so he's so what we're what we're what Socrates is trying to get at here is why in this version of of what justice is and and how pious plays into this is why it's why it's why there's a division of labor in this one, but not in the ideal ends for all of these other professions. Um, there's one line here that I'm trying to find. Oh, here it is. And then after all of this, right? So we're towards the end of the dialogue here. Euthyphro is just kind of going to get fed up and say, Socrates, which is fun. Socrates, you're being Daedalus. Like you're picking up, you're, you're picking up your argument. You're moving it all around the place to try and confuse me and rhetorically win the argument. You're putting it back down to which Socrates then answers and says, nah, I've just been asking you questions, Euthyphro, and then trying to clarify your answers for you. So if anybody's being a Daedalus, it's you. Um, and we kind of leave, we kind of leave Euthyphro with him getting fed up, not really being able to put back the division of labor of what piety is back together. And Euthyphro says, okay, kind of right. I got to go. This is over. I don't know. Well, I don't know. And we're left being like the answer. We're never, as is the case for a lot of these things, we're not really left with the answer that we thought we were going to be left with by the end of the dialogue. Um, Because we end with this kind of like justice and piety is kind of like this weird trading enterprise that happens between gods and men and well, and then what's that, what that ends up doing is it brings Euthyphro back to stating his first premise. Right, exactly. The very, very first premise, which is just that the things that are pious are the things that the gods love. Yeah, and, and, which, and yeah, Socrates, again, is not very pleased with that. He says, ah, Euthyphro. Uh, I was, uh-huh. was going to bring you, you were going to be my defense attorney because you were going to tell me what piety actually is. And if you could do that, then you could figure out how I'm not corrupting the youths. But I see now, again, he says the last line, one of the last lines of it, after we get back to it's pious 
um, for all of these same reasons that we've been talking about this whole time. He says, so tell me, good Euthyphro, and do not hide what you think it is. And Euthyphro says, some other time, Socrates, for I'm in a hurry now, and it is time for me to go. And Euthyphro just kind of walks away. And we, and we don't, and we don't know what piety really is. And in the year of our Lord, 2022, I don't know if we know what piety actually is, which again is kind of a, a debate about whether or not these forms exist, which is another fun thing, but yeah. That's the that's the beauty of the euthyphro. It's the beauty of it, and it's also the terrifying notion of it because this because this dialogue is what kicks off Socrates's eventual execution. Sure, you know, and and of course we're we're gonna as we follow this, you know, in our because I didn't read it series, we're eventually going to get to that, but why the euthyphro is so important in this dialogue or why this dialogue is so important in this line of succession is not only does it kick off the great, you know, this line of, of dialogues that lead up to Socrates eventually drinking the hemlock poison and dying spoiler alert. Um, but what it, when you, when you look at it in this broader spectrum, and actually, even for our listeners, this would be a very important, especially if this is your first time listening or learning about the Platonic dialogues. And as you're listening to this, this particular question is what eventually leads to Socrates' death. And why that is important and why it is incredibly relevant to today, just like you were mentioning, to, we're in 2022, and I don't think people still even know how to answer Socrates's dilemma but with socrates's death both figuratively literally i mean and i mean even adding on to it like historically metaphorically what does that mean so while this is is important in today's day and age is just what you were highlighting there christian it's it, and is that in 2022 we still don't know how to answer socrates's dilemma and with Socrates' death, it figuratively, metaphorically, spiritually, literally, for Plato, signifies the death of divine reason. And that the society that put him to death has died along with him. And it all starts with that question of oh <laughs> of uh what is piety because that's what socrates was put to death over yeah and that that, that was pretty poetic um but yeah i mean uh, eventually what corrupting the youth comes down to is or is is right unrighteousness on impiety impropriety right um and here you have it right uh the the book the book that I, that I use for, for the dialogues has five that lead up to his death in the Phaedo. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and so again, you, the way that this the book is rhetorically set up is that exactly what you say when he drinks the hemlock in the Phaedo um, and passes away. We learn from the very get go that it's it's impossible, or it was impossible, and is still impossible to answer that question. So you have you have you have you get that. Um, you get that uh, that conflict at the very start is that the way or the reason Socrates is killed comes from this unanswerable question. And so what we start doing in history, right? If we can if we can track it for just a little bit, what we start doing in history is latching on to one of the two horns. We, we tend to not grapple with both of them at the same time, like, like, like Socrates is trying to get Euthyphro to do what we do instead is we, we latch onto one horn and, and, and then go on as if that one horn is actually the way it is. Right. And so from those two horns, we have these two kind of schools of thought called, um, divine, divine conformity theory which which stems from the horn where piety and all of these virtues are above the umbrella and God is underneath it. And then divine command theory, where God is above the umbrella, right? And all of the virtues are underneath it. So in divine command theory, the virtues are the virtues because God commands it to be so. And in divine conformity theory, the virtues are the virtues because they are in this kind of transcendent metaphysical space and God is a kind of um, organizer works the virtues into the fabric of God's creation. Mm -hmm. So it becomes really easy for folk in history. I think Anselm and, and Aquinas are two big ones in Christian thought at least who are able to, who are able to look at Euthyphro and look at the dilemma and say, well, our God created the universe out of nothing, right? God transcends it all. So we don't even have to pay attention to whether or not God conforms to any of these other transcendent forms and things of that nature, because God created the very forms that we're talking about. Right. Um, Which, you know, is, is an interesting notion unto itself because, I mean, you know, Aquinas, for example, puts God as, um, I mean, he's got his five ways, right? That are really, you know, his famous five ways. But the big one is that he's the first mover for all contingency. And just to explain that briefly, it doesn't mean the first mover in a, in a, in a, in time, for example, what it means is that uh, when you look at something, it's contingent, it means um, in other words, dependency. So if you look at something like an organism that's dependent on something, it means that it's contingent. Right. So a first mover is something that is not contingent and, and that all contingencies depend on. That's the first mover. So for him, it's like, yeah, of course this, you know, in this 
transcendent theory that Aquinas holds to with contingency, that type of argument for Plato doesn't make any sense because God both creates and yet is. So it, it's one of those things where God is doing both things that the Euthyphro dilemma presents, where God both commands it and brings it into being. So in other words, it's it's the command theory, and yet God also is it and transcend, you know, and is subject to divine law as well. Because that's just the nate, it's the it's the laws of the universe that bring things into being as as, as well, right? Right, exactly. And in Anselm's Anselm's ontological argument for the existence of God is kind of similar. Um mm-hmm. Because he's going to say that that um, that God is a being um, that I'm trying to get this right um, with which there is nothing greater. Right, exactly. Yeah, and that if if such a being, such as God, fails to exist, um, then a greater being um, um, would, ne- would 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 by necessity be? would by necessity exist. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, no, it's been a minute since I since I pulled the ontological argument out of my head. So, <laughs> so thank thanks and, for that. You know, well, yeah, and Anselm's, you know, Anselm and, and Aquinas are actually a little different because Aquinas disagrees with the ontological argument, right? Though he he agrees with a form of it, but says that there needs to be a little bit because he looks at it from more of a form of contingency. And through Aristotelian forms of logic, which of course we'll right. get to when we talk right. about Aristotle. Right. Um, whereas Anselm is looking at it through what's called the hierarchy of being, which is this very popular notion in classical thought that uh, there, within being itself, there is a hierarchy that is for lack of a better word participatory in in being and so if you're a lower on a, on the lower stage it means you don't have as much being as something that's higher and higher and of course what determines that that um where you are in that hierarchy is your omnipotence omnipresence and omniscience mm-hmm. your state of it how aware of you are of all three of those things. And so that's why for Anselm, it's the, the Anselm introduces the omnis, the, you know, the big right. three omnis. Right. Right. It's, it's all of those things. So that's why logically, if there's something greater than God, then of course, you know, then that would actually be God, not the, not, not God. Right. So it's, so for Anselm, it's less about, the logic of contingency within Aquinas. And it's more just actually, it's more about reassigning what God actually is. If something greater is discovered than God. Right. Or, or yeah. the, the, then the God that we currently understand. So it's like, Oh, so this God isn't, isn't as great as we thought it was. Well, then that means that thing that's greater than it is actually God. Right. That's the greatest. Right. But behind, right behind, behind Anselm's back in a similar way to like behind planting us back. Um, yeah. Al- 
Good old behind Alvin. Al, yeah, Alvin Plantinga is another guy who's gonna who 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 um, adheres to divine command theory um, in the ontological being of or the ontological argument uh, is behind both of their backs is the just is is just the overwhelming kind of exuding confidence that there's no possible way that you can convince me that God is not God, right? Because planning is going to say, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but planning is going to say eventually that the only way you convince me that Christianity isn't the thing is if you can disprove Christianity itself, which of course is not really possible, right? So kind of in a similar way to, to Anselm, like, yeah, sure. If there's a bigger God than God, fine, that's God. But like you being able to prove to me that there's a bigger God than God is so slim that I'm willing to roll those dice with you. Right. <laughs> um, right. right. So those are for, for those dudes, they find it pretty easy to sidestep um, the other, the divine conformity. Horn. I guess for some context though, just that way people know who Planiga is. Sure. Uh, Alvin sure. Planiga was a he was a dutch reformist i believe so he wasn't a roman catholic or right. yeah. orthodox eastern right. orthodox yep. or he was a dutch reformist um very prominent uh philosopher of religion very famous one even and he taught at notre dame for a very long time yeah he does a lot of his um, i think his most profound work is on the problem of evil um, the problem of evil and naturalism yeah he's also uh, uh, those are his big things so yeah um we can put some of his works in the description if you're interested on the nature of god he's actually he actually published not too long ago a very readable introduction to some of his thoughts so if you're interested in learning about the ontological argument we'll put that in that's a good idea yeah that's a good idea um however there's been a lot of um or there's the other the other end of the horn right the divine conformists those who kind who who look at right the first creation uh the first creation narrative in genesis and see god as move is working with already existent material um they don't have as easy of a time um is escaping that other horn um that that god then just becomes kind of this cosmic organizer um and there are things, potentially virtues, the virtues being among them that are, um, that are outside or above or transcend God as this kind of cosmic material organizer. Um, just kind of an interesting implication um, in, is in Mormon thought where there's this notion where if God does X, he'll cease to be the God uh, in Mormonism, very anthropocentric, right? God absolutely is a man. Um, and so if God does X, he'll then cease to be God, which again, like for the, for the purposes of our discussion, kind of plays right into what Socrates hand, right? Um, cause I don't think that Socrates, I, I do think that Socrates is trying to say that these gods are kind of silly and to, to say that 
the gods are your reason for doing anything is kind of ridiculous to a point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's a qualification there, but to say that your sole purpose for doing something is because of the gods or the gods telling you to do something or because right. Exactly. Is because, because the gods are telling you to do something or you think it's what the gods want you to do is kind of ridiculous because there are these things that's that, that we can reason to ourselves, um, which make the gods, um, a little bit irrelevant, not totally irrelevant for other sorts of things. Um, but for a lot of things make the gods kind of irrelevant. So that's kind of an interesting little tension point in Mormon thought, um, where they kind of play right into that horn of the Euthyphro dilemma. Right. And the one, one thing that should be emphasized too, is that, um, Plato and even if maybe not Plato, definitely the later Neoplatonists, like people like Plotinus, Proculus, and especially Iamblichus and Demasius, um, they adhered to um, divine conforming theory very strongly. Right. Very strongly. So there is some argument. I mean, so we don't know exactly where Plato stood in this in this argument, because obviously, you know, from the from the uh, the dialogue itself, it's left a little bit unanswered. But when we get to the the Timaeus, it becomes a bit more clear, uh, especially when we get to the um, the Republic. Right. So once we see how all of this plays into a greater platonic thought. Uh, we'll see where Plato really lies in this uh, in in this dilemma. But for people like, I mean, Iamblichus, for example, who was a very prominent uh, um, Neoplatonist in the fourth century AD, he uh, very much adhered to this divine conforming theory and did it through a process called theurgy, which which are ritual actions to bring ones to allow the gods to participate to, you know, it's not an invocation of the gods, but it's, it's allowing us to be in union with the gods. So that way the gods themselves can then raise us up to be on in their nature. Now it's not worshiping the gods in the Euthyphro sense. It's actually look, it's actually viewing the gods as underneath and, subservient to higher these higher forms and so becoming one with the gods and becoming a god yourself is actually within this theurgic thought within iamblichus um which even speaks to um a lot of the incarnation thought within christianity particularly those with of maximus the confessor and uh dionysius the areopagite this coming it's there's higher principles the the forms within plato that the gods are subservient to and live and practice much like how you were putting it with with mormonism how Mm -hmm. if they don't live these principles they are no longer god but these gods live them and so the whole point of the theurgic practice is to bring human beings into the into divine presence and to become gods themselves so that's that's where 
Plato, or at least people that took Plato very seriously, um, and especially Christian Platonists like Maximus and Dionysius, uh, that's how they view it. That's how they view the dilemma. They say that that should be the answer to the dilemma. Right. Because of the, because that's how it answers questions of the incarnation or at the very least within Iamblichus and Demasius and their theurgy, it's about human beings being inherently um, divine or at least part of a divine origin, the one, and that they can then assimilate themselves back to the one by engaging with actions of the gods. Right. Yeah. And so some of that, that, that got a little bit, that got a little bit heady. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the theurgy that that's Brandon's gig or I'll, I yeah. will lay that definitely at, at Brandon's Welcome to feet. my world. <laughs> well, I think it, it's important. Right. And I mean, right. Even the, the Anselm and the, the, the Aquinas and, and, and the, the planning, I got kind of heady too. Right. So, but I, but I, I, I think it's important in a, as a way to just illustrate that um, these issues are alive and thriving and pertinent. Right. Um, and a lot of decisions that we make and on a lot of decisions that are being made in our quote unquote Christian nation. Um, well, and that, again, that stems back from just Christianity in its infancy, right? Like, the, like the Euthyphro dilemma informs Christian dogma, sure. From the first, from sure. the first ecumenical councils, sure. right? So yep. back, so back when Christianity's first trying to decide what is Christianity, this this question is informing it, right? And even then, I, I, you know, they don't answer it properly because, I mean shoot catholicism for example had a, had a council way back in the 1960s where they were still trying to figure these questions out <laughs> and likely we'll have another one in the next few years just because of how the catholic church has been and the state that it's been in over the past couple decades with all types of controversies on a lot of different sides not just and that's and that's putting aside the the issues with um with the clergy and you know sexual abuse scandals but it's just it's highlighting that point that just what you just said it's like the euthyphro dilemma has informed our civilization as we know it and how it forms itself and how it forms its laws how it forms what's considered um good what's considered to be a as you said a good christian nation i mean how often do we hear that within American rhetoric, especially, especially during like, you know, like the Ronald Reagan era in the 1980s and those who still adhere to that type of um, ideology and theology really that was, that was going on during that time period. It's, it's a problem that's still very much alive that people feel like they've answered, but and people have given answers to it, but again, just because people think they've answered it doesn't necessarily mean they have because youth, because again, that's why Euthyphro is such a, a compelling character when it comes to these types of problems, because Euthyphro is the kind of character who thinks he's got his head on straight, who thinks he's doing the right thing, who thinks he's standing up for something that's right. And then, but then when push comes to shove, 
all he really does is fall back on his initial argument. That's why that when it finally comes circular, not only is it poetic, and not only is it poetically ironic, but it's also showing that Euthyphro didn't learn anything in the end. And he's going about his business as if nothing had happened because right. he's just, he's back where he started right. and he goes about his business as if nothing had happened. Right. And that within itself is, is a very strong warning to all those who want to engage with philosophy, especially right. those in a Socratic nature. It's like, don't, if you're going to jump into philosophy, don't let, don't go back to where you were before, because that means that you're doing it wrong. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, if philosophy doesn't change you in some way, even if, even if it's just a, you know, like I, I, that's, in other words, be cautious not to be a euthyphro. Sure. Yeah. Be cautious not to find yourself in that type of, I mean, and that's, what we're seeing today that's what we're and that's what we've been seeing throughout history especially in in so-called western civilization is that it's been euthyphros up and down everywhere right yeah i think and, i think an, an answer to a a, a a a tale a kind of a warning tale too could just just straight don't be whoever the socratic dialogue is named after right so, so <laughs> yeah. today so right today it's don't be a euthyphro and in a couple of weeks it'll be don't be amino right don't be amino yeah don't if be, you uh... don't be a gorgeous if if, the, if there's a platonic dialogue named after you you've done something, you something wrong, wrong right um but yeah no I, I like that a lot right the 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 the, the kind of the heartbeat the beating drum the soapbox that is this podcast is that philosophy is not dead um it's not dusty it's not it's not rigor mortis um it's alive it's well it's thriving um for better or and most for worse. importantly and hmm. most importantly it should make fools out of all of us sure and that's and that's not a bad thing no you know like it's it's a fun thing right like I don't know. For me, finding out how stupid I am is quite an adventure. <laughs> right. And I mean, Socrates can be your best friend and exemplar there too, because at the end, at the beginning of every, every the beginning of every dialogue will come across much like Socrates to Euthyphro said, you are the smartest man in the world. You will be my defense attorney. At the Euthyphro or excuse me, Socrates is going to feign this kind of like fool and say, I'm the dumbest person in the world. Please gorgeous. Tell me how to rein in these passions. Um, and uh, so being a fool, learning is, um, is, is a Socratic virtue. It's the unwritten Socratic virtue. I think it's right after um, prudence is foolishness. And it's not one of the cardinal virtues either, which, no. you know, it's quite, it's quite strange, but Nevertheless, I think it's, I mean, when we get to the apology, I mean, we keep talking about that throughout this entire podcast episode that it's like, once we get to this and once we get to this, it'll all make more sense. But, you know, and I think that's entirely the point is like, 
which makes which makes philosophy fun too when you think about it especially with writings in plato because i mean plato's writing he had an un, you know a massive um amount of works that he did and and we're not even going to scratch the surface on all mm -hmm. of them we're just going to be touching the main ones that way people can can really get their feet wet with plato and that if they wanted to jump into plato they they have you know that hopefully we've given them a good base to work with and but plato could not contain all of his ideas in one dialogue just like no scholar, no historian, no politician, nobody's going to be able to contain everything in one sentence, in one book, in one paragraph, unless they follow the Socratic dictum or the famous Socrates, the famous saying of Socrates that if I, if there's anything that I know for certain, it is that I know nothing. Mm, right. <laughs> And if you can work with that, you can work with anything. Which is poetry, right? And so actually, you mentioned the apology. The apology's next. So if you'd like to go through what's supposed to be Socrates' actual speech at his defense trial in front of his big-ass Athenian jury, um, which if I remember right, I'll have to look this up before we do the, the apology, but if I remember right, an Athenian journey is something like, like five, 500 or, Oh, sheesh. Yeah, it was like 40. Weird. You know what? Maybe we're probably both dead wrong. Yeah, that's we'll true. So, we're, like, we'll, oh. so we do, we'll go figure it out because that was a huge disparity. Uh, I think it's big. Brandon thinks it's small. Come back next time on, because I didn't read it. We'll go through the apology and we'll figure out which one of us was right. If we're both wrong, Seems like neither of us read it either. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> well, thank you, Christian, for that. Oh, absolutely. And with that, we will bid you all adieu and go be a Socrates today. <laughs> Have fun. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this first episode of The Analyst and the Fool. We hope you found it enlighteningly absurd. To close out this episode, we wanted to remind you that you can reach out to us anytime about suggestions or further questions you may have about what you listen to at theanalystandthefool at gmail.com. If you would like more information about Christian or Brandon, please feel free to check their student bios and previously recorded podcast episodes. See the description for links. Brandon also recently recorded a podcast episode with his friend Nathan Smith for his YouTube channel, Mind Makes the World. In that episode, he and Nathan discuss hesychasm, the mystical and contemplative practices of Eastern Orthodox Christians. The link to Nathan's YouTube channel can also be found in the description. Nathan's also got a lot of exciting stuff coming up for his channel, so please be sure to subscribe. And please tune in to next week's episode, where we will begin our Latter-day Saint Thinker segment by discussing the thought of Joseph Smith Jr. In the following week, we will introduce the first episode of our third segment called Horsin' Around. In that episode, Christian and Brandon will be going on their first date together, so stay tuned for that. And then, finally, after all that nonsense, in the week after the Horsin' Around segment, 
we will return to, because I didn't read it, with the next chapter of Socrates' trial, Plato's Dialogue, The Apology. So stay tuned, folks. There's a lot of good stuff coming for this first season of The Analyst and the Fool. But for now, we thank you for sticking around with us thus far, and you stay classy, San Diego, or wherever you may be listening to this.